0: I'm Michael Shoulder on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations. All eyes on Charlottesville. This is the trial begins for the man accused of driving his car through a crowd of protesters. It happened on August 12th of last year during a Unite the Right rally. Dozens of people were hurt and one person, Heather Heyer, was killed. A jury will now decide the fate of the driver. The Charlottesville murder trial underway. I'd like to introduce you to one of that city's most distinguished citizens. First, a quick backstory. Fifteen months ago, right after the so-called Unite the Right rally, I wanted to find someone in Charlottesville with a unique perspective on what had transpired. I called historian Barbara Perry of the University of Virginia's Miller Center for a lead. She introduced me to one of her mentors, Henry Abraham. Henry Abraham grew up in Nazi Germany a Jewish boy who, thanks to his mother, got out in time. He became an esteemed scholar of constitutional law, the author of many books on the U.S. judicial system and civil liberties. Professor Abraham taught first at the University of Pennsylvania before moving to his beloved University of Virginia, where students he taught and mentored call themselves the Tribe of Abraham. It has been 15 months since neo-Nazis and white supremacists attempted to spread venom in Charlottesville. Henry Abraham, now 97 years old, is a kind of antidote to that venom. We spoke in August of 2017. Professor Henry Abraham, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I think we need to let the audience know we're here in Charlottesville, just a few miles away from where A large group of neo-Nazis and white supremacists came here just a week ago. And the reason we've come to you in part, in addition to your expertise in the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. judiciary system, is that you were born and raised Mm -hmm. in Nazi Germany. And Mm -hmm. so I'd like you to start there and start with some of your earliest memories of growing up while Adolf Hitler was chancellor.
1: My parents lived in a a nice area. And where was that, by the way? This was in the town where I was born, called Offenbach, like a composer. And uh, mother always had breakfast rolls delivered for me, as long as I knew her. Breakfast rolls. And one day, not long before I left, there was a slip instead of rolls, and it said, we do not deliver to Jews. We do not deliver yeah, to something Jews. Yeah, or to goddamn Jews or whatever it was. But Mother, as soon as Hitler came to power in January of 1933, she was at the consulate in Frankfurt to get my paper started. We had a lot of relatives in the States, and they were instrumental in providing the necessary affidavits to get me and subsequently my parents from Germany, to Pittsburgh. And my mother insisted that I would go first and I would go alone. It took four years. And when she began my paperwork, I was, oh, I was just 11. And four years later, she finally got the documents into shape and said goodbye to me. My father was dead set against leaving. He insisted that no country that bought of Beethoven could
0: engage in the kind of horrible crimes that perpetrated. So what was it that your mother understood that your father mother didn't knew, understand?
1: My mother knew that there was no hope. And she had to fight my father. I heard some of the conversations the day before I left. My father said, he's not going tomorrow morning. And mother said, try me.
0: (laughs) And then of course he gave up. So when you were 11 was when your mother decided we have to get our children out of here. and We have to get out of here. Describe to me what you remember growing up as a Jewish boy in Germany in the 1930s from the time say you were 11 Till the time, what were you, 15 or 16, when you went I on was a boat 15 alone? When 15, I left, yes. when you left alone. Um,
1: yes, my bar mitzvah was in 1934 when I was 13. And my mother had arranged a party in our <clears throat> apartment, from which we were expelled shortly thereafter. And the head of the Jewish committee came to the meeting, to the uh, gathering, and said, careful, please don't sing. If you are noticed, you may be in trouble. We mouth the music. We were scared actually, and that was early. I was by mitzvah in 1934. Oh, I went to see my, my maternal grandparents in that Bavarian town every summer for about six weeks. That was heaven, he had so many animals. And the last time I was there, I knew I was going to be leaving I left in April 37, this was maybe in February, and I took the cat I liked and went to bed, and suddenly there were tremendous sounds of stones and bricks against the windows. The windows were shuttered, however, and so nothing broke, and vile name-calling, You see, and those were probably people who had been on my grandfather's payroll. It was a horrible experience. I've never forgotten that. I don't know what I was afraid of. I knew this was terrible, but I didn't quite
0: know why. Let me ask you then the final question from your Germany chapter. I can only imagine as a parent myself, sending my, in this case, it was my oldest son, but only 15 years old, What did she tell you? Well, I can tell you that's sort of a sweet story.
1: My mother and father and brother, who was five years younger, I lost him last year. But they came to the train station with me in Offenbach and put me on the train for Hamburg. And I went from Hamburg, went to New York, where some relatives picked me up, leaving the train station, my mother suddenly turned around and said, oh, I forgot to tell you something. When you get to New York, Aunt Amanda, our cousin, is preparing a nice luncheon for you. Be sure to write a thank you note. And for the rest of my life, I've not only written thank you notes, i tried to teach my two sons with, well, some success. I wouldn't say complete success. So that
0: was the last thing she said. And so you got to America, to Pittsburgh, you enlisted in the US Army, you were in this intelligence unit, digging up documents. Oh yes, Uh, I was in the service for four years. And when I came over, you know, I
1: had to wait until I was of the proper age, could become a citizen. And when I was drafted and I wanted to be drafted, when I was drafted, I still was not a citizen. And when I got into the service and finally landed in uh, a wonderful unit, uh, it was possible for me to make a contribution because I was a linguist and the unit in which I served, we were almost entirely German Jewish refugees. A few were Dutch and uh, some Belgians, a few French and some British, but we were thoroughly trained and we spoke all sorts of languages. And we uh, played with languages. We translated everything under the sun into all kinds of languages. And in order to be in that unit, which I think was a ticket to survival, to be in that unit, you had to be trilingual. And I was able to offer French and German and English counted. So I was lucky. You also had to have an IQ of 130 so we may not have been good soldiers, but we were not dumb, and we had a very interesting experience. First, he did a lot of interviewing of German and Allied prisoners of war. I hated that, but I had to do some of it. But I got out of it and got into a very interesting subunit. We um, looked for the Nazi Party documents depicting the Eight million members of the party
0: with the help of a German peasant whom we bribed. And I I do want you to tell me a little bit more about how you found that peasant and bribed that peasant to get what? What was it that you got? Here's how we found the documents. We knew of the
1: existence. And, and And what
0: were the documents?
1: The Nazi Party files. That was the chief document. We wanted to know who was acknowledged Nazi party member because by that time we had begun to mount restitution and retribution and our colonel sent out all sorts of inquiries and one day a german peasant came to our headquarters and this was where in berlin okay he came from bavaria and he said I could tell you where those documents are, but I'm not going to tell you. And the colonel, all he had to do was arrest him or perhaps hit him or whatever he wanted to do. And I was hovering in the background, you know, with my mouth open. And the colonel said, well, what do you expect? And the peasant said, very expensive. Colonel said, I didn't ask you that. What do you expect? Two cartons of cigarettes. (laughs) And he also wanted permission to go through the coffee grounds in back of the building, you know. The Germans hadn't had any coffee for so long. And there we had all those important documents. And the Germans, in typical German style, had, of course, done everything in triplicate for us and in alphabetical order once we took Berlin. It didn't have to do very much, but we had a direct line to Nuremberg where Justice Jackson was our prosecutor during the war crimes trials. So it was a wonderful experience. And I, uh, I went back to school and went back to Kenyon and graduated then and went off to Columbia and got my PhD and then taught for about 60 or 75 years, depending upon how you count.
0: So 60 or 75 years as a professor with a specialty in constitutional law and U.S. judicial. It was con law, especially
1: constitutional law, law, judicial process. Judicial process, civil
0: rights and liberties. But I'm not a lawyer, as the law professors would tell you very quickly. And I know you're officially retired, but you still teach, I understand. I just
1: finished teaching this fall I had done so for 15 years in a pro bono program. And I usually taught about the court and its existence, but it got to be a little much. And so when I was
0: 95, I decided maybe I should stop. So let me ask you then, given what you understand about the constitution and about civil liberties and about the American system and all that you've taught over the years, if Donald Trump, were your student right now and you could have him in your class, do you try to reach out to people you disagree with and who are so fundamentally against your values? If he were in that audience and he were your prime student, how would you engage him and what would you say to him? I would try to teach him a little history.
1: I would teach him the essentials. I don't think he knows what's in the Constitution. You know, he makes things up. I would urge them to read the constitution and the constitution is not so easy to read, but I can't
0: believe this is happening, but it is happening. He is a disgrace. But if you had to boil it down in his own language, making America great based on your experience, both in childhood, growing up in Germany, coming here, studying and teaching the constitution and the judicial system, and civil liberties, if you had to single out that one or two critical elements, what is it that makes America great?
1: I would tell them, first of all, they're lucky to be where they are in a country which is still free to considerable degree, although people like Trump don't
0: know the noun freedom. When the white supremacists and neo-Nazis came just really down the road here to Charlottesville, Were you watching on television from here at the Assisted Living Center? Now, I was not glued
1: to the TV. It was much too hurtful, you know. Needless to say, I was not only disgusted. For me, it was deja vu. It was a repetition. And I thought back of the 30s, what I had to go through. These are all predominantly blue-collar men, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Which is filled with hate. And if you had asked them, they couldn't give you anything except some dirty Jews and things like that. I couldn't believe what was going on. Classes of people who were acceptable and those who were not acceptable, you know, and they were throwing things at the temple here. I'm not a good member of the congregation, but I know where I belong. We tried to get a police person, wouldn't provide any, Why they picked Charlottesville, I still don't understand. Why this lovely town? Why of all places? But, you know, hate is very thin and can be so brutal. And what we learned while we were going through it, when my parents had to leave their apartment in a comfortable place, they managed to get an apartment together with 34 other people. I had already left. I left in 37. These 35 people, you know what, they were friends. When Hitler came to power and started his program, one by one, they wouldn't have anything to do with my parents. There was the incident of the baked rolls, but much, much stronger things. There wasn't a single person among the 34, a single family that did anything except one couple
0: let me ask you though, because you said it was déjà vu yeah. when these demonstrators came. Some of them, at least, armed very heavily with guns. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was, you know, they've basically been very much underground. They've been yes. collaborating on the internet. They had been. And collaborating. they came. These white supremacists and mm-hmm. neo Nazis came and exposed their faces mm-hmm. for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. So- All I could think of was, why am I here?
1: What am I looking for? Why am I listening? And I didn't listen to a lot of it. I said, I can't believe what's going on. Of course, it fortunately didn't last very
0: long. And the locals were wonderful, most of them. So I guess when you say deja vu, but there still is a fundamental difference. Because here, people didn't just sit back quietly.
1: Anti-Semitism was very strong in Germany, always. I could always ask myself, what had we done? You know, my father's family, I can trace it to late 9th century, 8th century. I just couldn't understand it. And to have this go on here, it was very hurtful. At the same time, I was not disappointed in the reaction of my friends and even acquaintances. I have to say, they were determined not too many, <laughs> so, but there were. my home room teacher was wonderful to me, and he saw to it that I was given a prize of a camera. I still remember it was an ACFA box camera. There was a contest as to which student would get it, and he, of course, made the horrendous mistake of giving it to a Jewish student, namely me, and they put him into retirement. They didn't hurt him, but they retired him. See, this was 1937. This man found out that when we came to Offenbach and I helped organize a service, which was run largely by American Jewish boys, and the teacher found out, and he came to services, he held my hand, for a whole hour, with all the love he could master, just wouldn't let go.
0: All this makes me more optimistic because here we're living in a society where when we see something that happened right here in this town in Charlottesville, people of goodwill seem to band together. Let me ask you a question which is very relevant about constitutional law and what just transpired in Charlottesville, freedom of speech where do you draw the line
1: oh my word (laughs) i have to give you books i don't know the first amendment is very difficult you know and very delicate well obviously you have to draw the line at action you see that's relatively easy to say but sometimes that action has adherence and very difficult to draw lines in the first amendment
0: in charlottesville yeah Was this a clear case of this goes beyond free speech? It was a clear case. You know,
1: when you arm yourself and sing songs about dirty Jews,
0: that's not protected. Explain to me in U.S. constitutional law, why would that not be protected, saying dirty Jews and arming yourself in public? Why should that or is that not protected speech? Why is it not protected speech? because it goes beyond
1: veracity for one thing. It goes beyond justification. When my mind went back how I was beaten up, and they couldn't have answered why they beat me. You see, the answer would have been, he's a Jew. And I think there have to be some limits.
0: But I just want to ask you a couple more questions because as a parent, I'm a father of three. Shortly after my wife and I became parents, 9-11 9-11 happened and mm, the yeah. wars that followed. And so I've always struggled and tried to come up with a way to explain bad things in the world in a way that's honest, but doesn't create fear. I would like to hear from you if you remember what your grandparents told you, if anything, that night that the rocks started shattering against your shutters. It didn't say very much. It's just mentioned the fact
1: these were bad people, who were intolerant, but you mustn't be so concerned about it. We think it will be
0: all right. And it didn't take long for them when they had to flee. And despite what's happening in our society now, and there are some very troubling things, you still seem like you're an optimist. Maybe I'm wrong, but you tell me, would you define yourself as an optimist? Yes. Yeah, I've always been
1: an optimist, and I'm not going to change that. That may be Pollyannish in some cases, but I do look for good in people,
0: and I also sometimes find bad in people. Tell me about your grandmother's optimism. How did she communicate her optimism to you? She
1: always laughed. That was one
0: thing. She always laughed and she always wore an apron.
1: And the last time I saw her, she took me to the gates of their farm and she was laughing and I'm sure she was crying, but my maternal
0: grandparents were very happy people. I still hear my grandmother's laughs. Now tell me about your mother's optimism and how she conveyed that. What do you remember? Mother was a real optimist and I'm going to say that.
1: She conveyed it always saying, basically, people are good. I was lucky. I had to be lucky, both physically and mentally and otherwise. And I was happily born into a good family, you see, and I was lucky with my friends. And when all is said and done, luck played a major role. But I was also insistent on perhaps taking part in the development of students who would become valuable members of society.
0: And I always wanted to teach. What was it about teaching that was so important to you? It was very important. Because it sounds like you knew you wanted to be a teacher from a very early age. Yes. What was it? I hoped that I could
1: tell people a little bit about matters that were significant. I hoped I could convey at least some knowledge of history. I've been so lucky, and I've had some marvelous students, and they formed a society. The tribe of Abraham. The tribe of Abraham. But it's been a good career, and it's been a good life. There has been quite a bit of pain along the way, but somehow I could combat it.
0: And I mean, you've come out, it seems to me a person who is not traumatized, who is very resilient. Where do you think you got your resilience?
1: Just a good family, I think, have to put my mother first because she was unique in pinpointing that, which is important, and she was capable of great love. She was fantastic. She gave me two lives, she bore
0: me, and she sent me off to the States. Professor Abraham, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer, and then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.